and welcome to this week's podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 17th September 2021. This is Ian Haydock. This time, Roche shores up oncology, Janssen's multiple myeloma strategy, gene therapy safety, a new PD-1 inhibitor moves forward in the US, and COVID and herd immunity. Roche hopes to maintain long-term leadership in oncology as it shores up its cancer portfolio and pipeline. After losing market exclusivity on three top-selling oncology franchises, Avacyn, Rituxan and Herceptin, the Swiss giant is enthusiastic about rebuilding its portfolio and ready to showcase its next generation of potential blockbuster cancer drugs. Our oncology pipeline remains among the strongest in the industry, Chief Medical Officer Levi Garraway declared during an R&D overview on 14th September. The company's heritage in oncology spans solid tumours and haematology, where Roche is hoping to move treatments earlier and the opportunities for cures may be possible. Jessica Merrill writes that while oncology remains a core focus, Roche has more broadly diversified its pipeline. Drugs like Ocrevus for multiple sclerosis and Hemlibra for haemophilia A have helped the firm bridge some of the growth gap resulting from biosimilar competition to Avacyn, Rituxan and Herceptin. Oncology accounted for about 40% of the commercial portfolio revenues in the first half of 2021 versus 55-60% to 60% in 2011, Pharmaceuticals CEO Bill Anderson said. Expansion in immunology and neuroscience are ongoing and balance out Roche's presence in other areas like oncology. There's a clear product rejuvenation and diversification ongoing, Anderson said. One of the company's big potential near-term growth drivers is in neuroscience, with gantanerumab, a beta-amyloid antibody for Alzheimer's disease, but management did not have any material updates for investors about the regulatory filing strategy. An overarching theme of the nearly four-hour investor overview was that Roche has followed through on its commitment in 2019 to emphasise investment in R&D over other areas. The company has increased spending in R&D while cutting budgets in sales, marketing and operations. A big part of Roche's R&D revamp has involved improving productivity at the same time, streamlining operations and investing in analytics leveraging the company's expertise in diagnostics and biomarkers as well, a strategy it has been emphasising for years. Multiple myeloma is all about combination regimens, but Janssen is bringing forward new therapies with promising single-agent activity with the goal of shaking up existing regimens and curing patients early in their disease. Mark Wildgust, who's Vice President of Global Medical Affairs in Janssen's oncology group, explained to Scripps' Mandy Jackson how the Johnson & Johnson subsidiary is building on its success with the CD38 inhibitor Darzalex with curative regimens in mind. Darzalex and its subcutaneously administered version Darzalex FASPRO are approved in six different multiple myeloma indications, including as a monotherapy in the fourth line or later, and in combination with various standard-of-care drugs in newly diagnosed autologous stem cell transplant-ineligible or transplant-eligible patients. Janssen is taking a similar route from later lines to earlier lines of treatment with the three lead programmes in its myeloma research and development pipeline, but with the intention of testing the assets in combination with each other to drive better responses. 
Janssen's lead investigational stage program is the BCMA targeting CAR-T therapy, Siltacel. The autologous product, developed in partnership with Legend Biotech, is awaiting a US FDA approval decision expected by 29th November. Multiple clinical trials are ongoing to test Siltacel in earlier lines of therapy and in combination with other agents. Following close behind, Janssen is testing two bispecific T-cell engagers in Phase 1 and 2 clinical trials, the BCMA and CD3 targeting teclistamab and talcatamab, which targets GPRC5D on myeloma cells and CD3 on T-cells. The T-cell recruiting monoclonal antibodies offer an off-the-shelf alternative to autologous CAR-T therapies like Siltacel that take weeks to manufacture from individual patients' own T-cells. We've got this critical mass now of novel therapies, so I think we are on that precipice of being able to build those regimens toward a cure, Wildegast said. At earlier stages of development, Janssen's pipeline includes allogeneic CAR-T therapies and tri-specific antibodies. The exact cause of a fourth death in the phase 1-2 Aspiro study of Astellas' gene therapy AT132 in X-linked myotubular myopathy remains under investigation. But while it occurred in a disease whose patients are already known to be highly vulnerable, it comes at an awkward time as the safety of adeno-associated viral vector-based gene therapies are facing increased scrutiny. There has been a spate of serious adverse events, deaths and clinical holds in AAV vector-based gene therapy trials, which prompted the US FDA's Cellular Tissue and Gene Therapies Advisory Committee to hold a meeting on the 2nd to 3rd September on how to address the growing safety concerns. Since that meeting, there have been more red flags raised over gene therapy trials. The latest from Estellus and Biomarin's 6th September announcement of an FDA clinical hold on its phase 1-2 trial of BMN307 for phenylketonuria. Alec Jarman writes that it does not appear the FDA is likely to impose a cap on total dosage for vector genomes or capsids in AAV vector-based gene therapies as the committee instead called for more standardization and better approaches to product characterization to get a better sense of the role, if any, that product quality considerations have played in toxicities observed in the various trials. The FDA could end up changing recommendations to include things like longer animal studies in a wider range of species, along with more stringent screening requirements for trial participants and more extensive monitoring after they receive therapies. In a July 2020 letter in Human Gene Therapy, University of Florida Professor of Genetics Aaron Srivastava pointed to adverse events occurring in patients receiving higher doses of AAV2 gene therapies as well as AT132, which is an AAV8-based product. But the relative lack of such events in gene therapies using AAV9 vectors administered at high doses such as Novartis's spinal muscular atrophy treatment, Zolgensma. There is also the question of whether older children and adults are more prone than infants to AAV vector-induced immune responses. In response to concerns in an editorial in the same journal, researchers who had studied AT132 pointed out that the three boys who died were older and heavier and had thus received among the highest total vector genome range.
in addition to showing evidence of pre-existing liver problems. But Srivastava told Scrip, in the absence of any information on the quality of the AAV8 vector used, the researcher's statement about the boy's age and weight did not take into account the likely possibility that these patients received higher doses of empty AAV capsids as well, further increasing the total antigen load. Given that the last patient died with a low dose, I really worry about the other 14 boys who received the high dose, he added. Estella said on 1st September that it had voluntarily paused screening and dosing of additional patients in Aspiro after a patient experienced a serious adverse event of abnormal liver function tests. Novartis plans to get a slice of the global anti-PD-1-L1 market, have advanced with news that the US FDA has accepted a submission for Tislelizumab, licensed from China's Beijing, as a treatment for esophageal cancer. The agency has set a PDUFA target action date of July 12th next year for its evaluation of the anti-PD-1 immune checkpoint inhibitor for the treatment of unresectable recurrent locally advanced or metastatic esophageal squamous cell carcinoma in people who had received prior systemic therapy. The BLA filed by Beijing on behalf of Novartis is based on data from the Phase 3 Rationale 302 trial, which demonstrated a 30% reduction in the risk of death and extended median overall survival by 2.3 months compared to chemotherapy in people with ESCC who had received prior therapy. Novartis acquired ex-China rights to Tislelizumab earlier this year, paying $650 million up front. The Swiss major switched its attentions to the drug after its own anti-PD-1 candidate, Spartalizumab, came unstuck in a phase 3 trial in melanoma, when a triple combo of the checkpoint inhibitor with Defenlar and Mechanist failed to meet the primary endpoint of progression-free survival when compared with the BRAF-MEC combination. Jeff Legos, Novartis' global head of oncology and haematology development, told Scripps' Kevin Grogan that it represented a major milestone when the FDA elects to accept a file for review, especially as it marked the first ex-China regulatory filing for Tislelizumab. The therapy has already been approved for a number of indications within China, including as a first-line treatment for advanced squamous and non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer in combination with chemotherapy. If approved by the FDA, Tislelizumab would compete as a second-line immunotherapy for esophageal cancer with two well-established immuno-oncology blockbusters, Merck's Keytruda and BMS's Obdivo. Both of these are also approved as first-line treatments in combination with chemotherapy in esophageal cancer patients, regardless of PD-L1 status. Finally, Herd immunity against COVID-19 may well be an illusion. A leading public health expert has asserted, suggesting that the world should instead aim for disease immunity as it makes efforts to steer its way out of the pandemic now in its second year. At a media programme organised by MSD, as Merck & Co is known outside North America, Professor Tiki Pangestu, co-chair of the Asia-Pacific Immunisation Coalition, and chair of the board of directors of the Asia-Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance, said that herd immunity for COVID-19 may not be achievable, especially with the global spread of the highly contagious Delta strain. 
Herd immunity is essentially the indirect protection from an infectious disease that occurs when a population is immune, either through vaccination or immunity developed through previous infection. The Delta variant has an R0, which is the basic reproduction number, of close to 8. That's approaching measles, and to achieve 95% herd immunity, in my view, that's a myth. I don't think it's possible, Pangestu said at the briefing, which more widely discussed sustaining immunisation in the Asia-Pacific region. Typically, the higher the R0, a measure of contagiousness or transmissibility, the greater the immunisation coverage required to achieve herd immunity. In the case of measles, which is highly contagious, R0 is generally thought to be around 12 to 18, implying that every person with measles could, on average, infect 12 to 18 individuals in susceptible populations. Herd immunity against the measles requires about 95% of a population to be vaccinated. With the Delta variant of the coronavirus much more contagious than the original strain, its R0 is higher as well, with some studies estimating around 5 to 9 for Delta versus 2 to 3 for the initial SARS-CoV-2 strain. Against this background, Pangestu joined other experts now suggesting that achieving a herd immunity threshold for COVID-19 looks less likely, with factors such as new variants, vaccine hesitancy, the varying rollout globally of vaccines, and limited answers on the duration of protection of vaccines, all adding complexities to the issue. That's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening. A reminder that these articles in full are linked in the article accompanying this podcast and also to sign in or to take a free trial to access all of our content. Bye for now.